First John chapter two. Uh, we're moving through this uh, ancient letter that, uh, if you'll remember, was written by the Apostle John, same guy that wrote the Gospel of John. And uh, John is just this really interesting character historically and biblically in that, uh, in a lot of ways, he, uh, he would be thought of as Jesus' best friend and the guy that spent uh, an incredible portion of his formative years literally walking with Jesus, learning from Jesus, sharing meals, and uh, being discipled personally by Jesus as a young man. And now he's a very old man, probably in his 90s, and he's one of maybe the last disciples, uh, original disciples, those that really actually knew Jesus in person. And he is now kind of a pastor for this network of house churches in the region of Ephesus. And so John, as an old man now, is encouraging these new communities of Christians to kind of take the baton as he hands off this legacy of the Christian faith. And uh, he's responding to several different kind of scenarios or tragedies that this church is walking through. And we'll talk about one of them more specifically this morning in that there are people, apparently, who have left the faith. They have denied Jesus. And now John, even if you can hear him in this really personal way, say, how could you deny Jesus? I knew him. I was with him. I'm the disciple who Jesus Love, don't turn away and follow something else instead. So it raises the question, how many of us know somebody who has turned away from the Christian faith? How many know somebody that used to identify as a Christian but no longer does? Pretty much all of us, right? As a pastor, I know hundreds of them. People who at one point identified as a follower of Jesus and then at, another, at some other point, they, they changed their mind or they, they walked away. And so maybe it was the faith that they were brought up in as a child. And then when they got into high school or college or came into adulthood, they just realized, like, this faith view doesn't really work for me anymore. Or maybe their de deconversion came at some later point in life. Maybe when things didn't go the way they thought they would with God, or maybe there was some unexpected tragedy, or maybe they just were dealing with intellectual dilemmas regarding the faith and they could no longer reconcile it, and so they deconverted. Or maybe they just kind of slowly drifted away, didn't really think about it or process, but just kind of eventually found themselves with a new set of beliefs, a new set of values. Um, and, or maybe a lifestyle that just was no longer compatible um, with Christianity. All of us know somebody who used to call themselves a Christian and no longer does. What about you? Have you ever thought about leaving Jesus? Do you ever feel like your Christian faith is keeping you from the life you really want? Are you ever tempted to branch out and experiment with other religions or worldviews or maybe adopt a new lifestyle? Do you ever get embarrassed or feel ashamed about being a Christian and kind of feel like you just want to distance yourself from the whole thing? Or maybe you wonder if the teachings of Christianity are no longer relevant to the modern world that we live in. 
Or maybe you don't want to leave Jesus, but being part of the church, his church, has just become too painful or boring or shallow or hard. And you'd rather just kind of go at it on your own. How many of us, I wonder, have thought about leaving Christianity behind and just living our own life? This is exactly the scenario that John is writing to in Asia Minor. This is what these Christians have gone through. That some of their really close friends, people that, who they were part of church with, who they shared life with, people that they considered their brothers and sisters, have now begun leaving. Not just that particular church, but leaving Christianity and Jesus altogether. And so this community is left in a place of mourning, in a place of grieving. People who they loved and knew well are now gone from among them. And so John's writing to comfort this community of Christians, but he's also writing to encourage them to persevere in the faith. Because apparently those that have left are kind of tempting those that have stayed to come with them. And they're bringing in new teachings and new worldviews, and they're trying to encourage these Christians to, to leave the faith and to come along. And so John, as a pastor, as somebody who knew Jesus so well, is saying, don't leave I know that it's hard. I know that it's tempting. I know that life doesn't always go the way you think it should with God. But don't deny the truth. Don't deny the gospel. Don't leave the God who knows you and loves you. And so specifically, the encouragement that he gives several times in this passage is to remain in Christ. Don't leave, but remain. Abide. Make your home in. Find your life in. Stay with Jesus. So the specific issue that John's dealing with in Ephesus is this uh, worldview known as Gnosticism. So the people that were leaving the church and leaving Christ, they weren't deciding, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I want to go out and live some crazy, rebellious, sinful life of indulgence and violence or something like that. Nobody was going, I don't want to be a Christian. I want to go be a drug dealer or a serial killer or something like that. That's not how this was going. They were <clears throat> deciding that the Christian faith was too simplistic too primitive, unenlightened, not advanced enough for their modern minds. And so they were moving towards a Gnostic worldview that they saw as a more advanced and enlightened, a higher level of spirituality. And so Gnosticism emerged some point in the first century in the ancient world and it was a really complex and multi-formed worldview. 
And essentially, Gnosticism didn't have any creeds of its own, so it was really kind of a fluid faith. But what it did was borrowed from all the other religions of the time. So it took elements of pagan belief and the Persian religions and Judaism and Christianity and Greek philosophy, and it kind of just hodgepodged all these things together into something that made, uh, that made sense to the people at the time. And so in Mark Sayer's book, Disappearing Church, he kind of uh, summarizes the basic beliefs of Gnosticism like this. The first is that the world of time, space, and matter in which we live is inferior. The world is inferior because it has been created by an inferior and possibly evil God. Beyond our world and the inferior God, there's a sublime place to which we must progress. We can progress to the sublime place when we discover the divine spark within ourselves. Truth is found within the individual. We must look inside to find our true self. And we can progress to the sublime place through knowledge, which is the word gnosis in Greek. We escape the inferior world by finding the hidden pieces of knowledge in the world and in ourselves. Okay? So just a very plain language summary of this worldview known as Gnosticism. And what you can summarize there is that essentially for Christians that were leaving the, the, the teachings of the apostles and the teachings of Jesus and moving towards this hodgepodge of modern spirituality, the biggest shift there is that authority or truth is transferred from God to self. In Christianity, we, we hold to a God-centered worldview. Jesus' teachings were about the kingdom of God. Jesus identified as the Son of God. Jesus' whole life and ministry and existence is centered on the person of God. But in a Gnostic worldview, all of a sudden, the seat of truth and authority is located within me. Where I no longer am expected to operate in submission or really in relationship at all with this God, but somehow I actually functionally become God of my own universe. And so in this sense, Gnosticism, we can see from the beginning, is actually a reversal of the gospel story. The gospel is that God has come to us in the person of Jesus. The God of heaven has descended to earth. The creator has become creation to bring salvation to the world. But Gnosticism actually turns it upside down and says the individual soul is able to ascend to the highest level of enlightenment, creating and shaping itself and becoming its own author and forging its own identity. So instead of a God-centered world, we each create a self-centered world. And we're told specifically in verse 22, who is the liar, whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ? Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. By the way, when you hear Antichrist, don't think weird Kirk Cameron movies and all that kind of stuff. He literally just means against Christ, opposed to Christ. There's many Antichrists. And he's saying this, this Gnosticism is an anti-Christ view. Because why? Because it denies that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one 
of God. And so this is what's happening. These people who knew Jesus, who were baptized, who were sharing life as part of the family of God, begin to be tempted by this kind of sexy, new, enlightened spirituality of the world that was building upon all the pieces of different religions and faiths. And at some point, if they bought into it, they had to deny that Jesus is the Christ and instead assume a position of lordship in their own lives. And hopefully you're starting to see that Gnosticism isn't just some weird, obscure, first-century cult, but it actually is a worldview that continues to be prevalent and even more and more dominant in the world that we live in, doesn't it? Uh, Jen and I, a couple weeks ago, went to see Mattis Yahoo. Any fans? A few of you guys. Yeah, interesting guy. Uh, he grew up in Bend, if you didn't know that, or at least he went to high school here. Just kind of an average white dude. And uh, at some point in his like, late teens, early 20s, he converted to Hasidic Judaism. So he decided to do all the stuff that kind of uh, these traditional conservative Jews do. And so he like, grew out his beard and long curls on the side of his head. And he was a, uh, he's a performance artist who kind of back then was doing more like reggae hip-hop. But he was also Jewish and also a white dude from Bend. And um, he got famous. He blew up overnight um, and became a really big deal. And uh, he wouldn't, like, he would observe Sabbath and kept kosher. He wouldn't perform shows on Saturday, which was, you know, kind of crazy. And so uh, I've been a fan of his for a long time. And then uh, about five years ago or so, um, as I've kind of followed his music and his story, he publicly deconverted from Judaism and uh, basically decided that he no longer wanted to, uh, to keep this faith. And uh, let me read the quote that he put out on his website when he decided to deconvert. He said, When I started becoming religious ten years ago, it was a very natural and organic process. It was my choice, my journey to discover my roots and explore Jewish spirituality, not through books, but through real life. At a certain point, I felt the need to submit to a higher level of religiosity, to move away from my intuition and to accept an ultimate truth. I felt that in order to become a good person, I needed rules, lots of them, or else some, I would somehow fall apart. And then, I'm reclaiming myself, trusting my goodness in my divine mission. So that's the way he says, I no longer need religion to tell me who, who I am or how to live. And he says, it was really helpful. It was kind of training wheels as I was learning how to ride. But now I don't need these training wheels anymore. I'm ready to take control of my own life. And what does he appeal to? No longer to God or even to the religious tradition. I am reclaiming myself, trusting my goodness and my divine mission. I no longer need a religious system or some God figure to be authority in my life. I'm ready to do that on my own. Now, here's what's interesting is I, I don't bring this up to demonize him or anything like that. I still like his music. And uh, if judging from the last show, uh, he now goes to the Church of Cannabis or something like that because <laughs> uh, he's, he's, he found something that works for him. But... Um, 
Most of us would never say this about our Christian faith, but I think a lot of us actually see our faith the same way Mattis Yahoo saw his Judaism. That it's kind of this elementary, primitive tool. It's training wheels. It's sort of the initial uh, framing of a worldview and a set of rules and morals and values and beliefs that kind of help me grow up. But eventually, there is a temptation, it's the same as the Gnostic temptation, to dethrone God, to leave the faith, and ultimately to leave Jesus so that we can decide for ourselves what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, what's up and down. And we move from a God-centered life to a self-centered life. And many of our friends, our family members, people that we know really well, that used to walk with Jesus, used to hold to this faith, used to worship God with us, in one way or another, in one form or another, have moved past the gospel. Now here's here's what I think is fascinating. We live in what's called an increasingly post-Christian society. And I'm not going to make a claim that America or the modern West was ever Christian. People can be Christians. Countries can't. But it was Christianized, right? The Judeo-Christian worldview was the dominant view uh, until just these last 40 or 50 years. And now increasingly, we're in a post-Christianized society. But what that doesn't mean is that we've entirely rejected everything having to do with the Christian faith. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, I would argue that so much of the modern progressive social vision that's especially dominant here in the Northwest is actually haunted by the Christian faith. I think so much of the dominant progressive social vision that we see in mainstream media and Hollywood and everywhere else, it doesn't, we don't recognize it as Christianity, but the ghost of Christianity is ever-present within it. I know that sounds like a strange claim to make, but when you think about what are the values of a progressive social vision, well, it starts with this thing called social justice, right, which has to be defined and wrestled out, a vision of equality, a vision where everybody has everything they need, where there's no racism. Oftentimes, it's a vision of nonviolence. Well, where did all those ideas come from? They came from Christianity. In a lot of ways, the vision for reconciliation, for justice, for peace that we see in the modern progressive movement, those are kingdom values. So what's the problem? They want the kingdom, but they don't want the king. Now, now that I've only offended half of you, let's hit the other side. (laughs) On the other end of the spectrum from progressive or liberal uh, spirituality would be fundamentalism on the far right, which... uh, in a lot of ways, is still very, very connected or committed to the idea of the authority of Scripture, the truth of the Christian teachings, holds to kind of orthodox uh, Christian doctrine. And those people end up just sometimes becoming the biggest jerks in the world, right? And and in the caricature of this would be uh, a Jesus follower who is pro-violence, 
So what's wrong with fundamentalism? They like the king, but they've rejected the kingdom. Right? So you, I could lay it out for you like this. Next slide. Liberal Christianity wants the kingdom without the king. And what it does is reduces the gospel to its implications. Pursues the things that are reminiscent of Christ's kingdom, justice and equality and reconciliation and peace, but simply uh, focuses on the implications while ignoring or even denying the gospel. On the other end, on the right, fundamentalist Christianity wants the king without the kingdom and detaches the gospel from its implications. So it would continue to be those that profess that Jesus is Lord and were saved by grace through faith, and they seem to be completely ignorant of the things that Jesus cares about and the people that God has called us to live among, to work with, to love, and to protect. And so I would argue that this radical third way is nothing new, but that biblical Christianity embraces both the king and his kingdom and champions the gospel and its implications. Now, this isn't new. This is exactly the kind of thing that John is calling his followers or his people to come back to. Don't leave Jesus behind in order to graduate to a more enlightened or evolved spirituality, even if that spirituality kind of tends to just fit in better with the modern world. He's going, that's great. You can gain the world. You won't have to be embarrassed by your coworkers anymore for being a Christian. You can live a more comfortable life. You can actually even get rid of some of the guilt you've been packing around because of your sin, because now you get to decide what's sin. He's like, yeah, you can actually gain the whole world. But what do you lose? You lose Jesus. And so what he says here in verse 22 again is that anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is a liar. Pretty harsh language. Meaning they are not living in tune with reality. It is not my opinion that Jesus is the Christ. As those who hold to the Christian faith, we declare this as public truth. I don't get to decide whether he's Christ or not. I get to decide whether I'm going to live in tune with the reality of who he is or uh, choose to live a lie. Very harsh, very clear language. But remember, this is John. No, Jesus. I was with him. I know him. Don't call me a liar. I was there with him. Now, it's interesting around this question of those that would be tempted to stray from Christ or, or the Christian faith. Um, this happens several points in Jesus' ministry. As he's teaching, as he's preaching about the kingdom of God, as he's doing miracles and healing people and all this kind of stuff, there are times when Jesus really ticks off the crowd. There's times where he says something that you almost get the sense that he's intentionally trying to weed out the false followers in the room. 
So at one point after he does this miracle of multiplying a whole bunch of, a little bit of food for a whole bunch of people, and everyone's like, this is sweet, I'm going to follow Jesus, free bread, right? And they're calling their friends, and like, come, get hooked up with free bread. There's thousands of people around, and Jesus goes, yeah, here's what I actually want you to do, though, is um, eat my flesh and drink my blood, Mass exodus out the room. We were just here for the bread, man. Not down for that. And Jesus isn't phased by that. It's not like he needs the approval of other people to have a significant and secure identity. And in John chapter 6, we see this story where after this whole eat my flesh, drink my blood kind of thing goes down, um, we pick up in verse 66. From this time... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And you don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So here's what I love about Jesus, being so incredibly secure in his identity as the beloved son of his father. He looks to these few remaining disciples he's got when the crowds have deserted him. And he's like, are you guys going to leave? And in some ways, he actually gives them permission, doesn't he? It's like, you guys can leave too if you want to. You don't have to keep following me. Are you going to leave too? And I personally love the answer that they give. It's not nearly as deep or heroic or spiritual as we'd think. But Simon Peter basically goes, we don't really have anywhere else to go. <laughs> like, yeah, we've thought about that, and <laughs> sometimes it sounds nice, but honestly, we, can't, you're, we don't have any other options. So we're, we'll probably stick it out, right? Now, he goes a little bit more than that. He, he goes on, you have the words of eternal life. Eternal life. So somehow these first followers of Jesus, Peter, and now we know, of course, John as well, what they have come to encounter in the person of Jesus isn't just a good moral teacher like the Gnostics would say, but somehow in Christ, the very life of God has come to earth. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. That you're not just another option. You're not just another religious leader or spiritual guru who we can choose bits and pieces of your teachings and hodgepodge it together into something more culturally acceptable. You have the words of eternal life. You are the truth. You are God. Come to us. Where else? Would we go? So, is it possible to leave Jesus? For those of us here today that struggle at times with our Christian faith, with our doubts, with our skepticism, with the intellectual dilemmas that are posed by this worldview, those that have been burned by the church, those that have been hurt or maybe even spiritually abused and are tempted just to go and live the life we want, is it possible to leave Jesus? It is. 
Jesus himself says, are you guys going to leave too? It is possible to leave Jesus. But of course we know that Jesus will never leave us. Right? The invitation, like I said earlier, throughout the course of this passage, the action verb that John is pleading and encouraging these people to hold to is the word remain. Yes, you can leave if you want to. But where else would you go? Instead, remain in him. In other translations, the word remain is abide, which speaks of dwelling, living, the place where you are at home. Jesus is inviting us to find a home in him. He's offering himself to us as the place where we can truly belong. And yes, we'll be tempted towards the beliefs of the world or the progressive culture that's around us or whatever it is. And Jesus says, don't neglect this teaching that you've had from the beginning, verse 24. This what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. What have they heard from the beginning? The gospel. The good news about God coming to bring salvation to the world. In John's gospel, he uses the metaphor of vine and branches, a vineyard, to give us a picture of what it looks like to remain in Christ or to abide in Christ. Really simple picture of branches that are growing off this main vine, this main trunk, and as soon as the branches break off, what happens? They wither and they die. Yes, they're free. Yes, they're no longer obligated to operate according to the vine's wishes. Yes, they can now be their own person, so to speak. But they wither and they die. Their souls shrivel. They are without a home. But for those branches that stay attached to the vine, they continue to live the life that they were made for. And it's not always easy, and it's not always pretty, and there's going to be storms, and there's going to be pruning. But as long as the branch is connected to the vine, it can flourish, it can grow, and it can bear fruit. And so remain doesn't seem like a very aggressive action verb, does it? Remain seems like standing still kind of waiting, hanging out. And so it would be easy to say, well, to remain means I'm just going to, I know what I believe, I'm going to hold to it, I'm going to stick to it. I know Christians that proudfully say, pridefully, proudly say, (laughs) I haven't changed a single one of my beliefs in 30 years. Isn't that awesome? I learned the gospel in Sunday school, and I haven't changed my mind about a single part of it anything about God in 30 years? You haven't grown at all in your understanding of who he is and what life with him is all about? 
Like, to repent literally means to change your mind. So I'm not encouraging some stagnant, primitive, elementary engagement with the Christian faith and saying, just remain, stand strong. That's not what branches do. They grow. They flourish. They bear fruit. They're guided in new shapes and new directions as long as they're connected to the vine. Remain. Abide. Cling to, hold on, find your home in Jesus. Abiding means believing and trusting and receiving life in Christ. So in this way, Christian maturity works the exact opposite of how we think of social maturity. As little kids, we're utterly dependent upon our parents. From the time we come into the world, we wouldn't make it without them, feeding us, caring for us, protecting us, teaching us. And then the process of parenting is raising your kids to become responsible, independent adults, where they no longer need you the way they once did. And we call that a success story. The problem is when we import that paradigm of maturity into spirituality, we think uh, it works the same way. Like Mattis Yahoo, I needed this structure and this teaching for a while, but now I'm growing up, and now instead of having to trust God or some ancient text, I just learn how to trust myself. I mean, this goes deep into the Western consciousness, and specifically as Americans, right? I mean... Two weeks ago, what did we celebrate? Independence Day. Independence Day. Where we are no longer dependent upon any other sovereignty or king or anything like that. We get to be our own king now. But spiritual maturity works the exact opposite way. Where as we remain in Christ, as we cling to him, as we live in him, it's not where we get to a point where we need him less and less. John's at a point at 90 years old, and he's going, I need Jesus more and more all the time. And not just need him, I want him. And I love him. And I don't want to go anywhere else. He's got the words of eternal life. He is the home for my soul. He is everything that my heart desires. So in Christian spirituality, maturity is about our declaration of dependence. That I'm trusting, believing, clinging to Christ more than I ever have. Personally, this has been my experience as well. I'm 38, and uh, when I was a little kid and first kind of confessed Jesus as Lord, prayed the prayer, did that whole thing, and asked him to forgive my sins, what kind of sins was I confessing? Right? Poking my brother, <laughs> stealing a marker, when I'm 38 and I confess my sins now, 
I am more and more aware of my capacity to be anti-Christ, to be selfish, to do harm towards myself and towards others in the form of manipulation. So the longer I walk with Jesus, the more grateful I am that he's invited me to remain in him, to abide in him, to live at home with him. If I were him, I would have kicked me out a long time ago. And that's where you get to see John's thought here. We're the ones that Jesus should be leaving. We're the ones that should be kicked out of his life. And yet somehow, we're even entertaining the idea of leaving him. Where else would you go? The reason we would leave Jesus, leave the church, leave the faith, is if we believe the lie that we can find true life outside of him. And yes, it's tempting at times to go with the flow of culture, to get on board with everything else that my coworkers and neighbors believe, but we know that's a lie. And that real life, eternal life, abundant life is only found in him. What is eternal life as we close? Verse 25, this is what he has promised to us, eternal life. Now, our Sunday school answer would be we get to go to heaven when we die, correct? I don't think that's what John's referring to. I think he's saying the same thing that Peter said in John 6, that you hold the words of eternal life. You are the truth. You are the way it is. You are king and Messiah and God. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And so what is promised to us? What is our reward for enduring in the faith even when it's hard? Remaining in, in the church even when it's hard? Holding to the Christian faith even when it's hard? What is the promised reward? It's Jesus. He gives us himself. He offers his life to us. That's it. That's all that's promised. You're not promised health or wealth or popularity or prestige or power or comfort. None of those things are promised. What he promised is, you have me. Remain in him. Stay with him. I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, read a section of the Nicene Creed, an ancient creed that affirms what the apostles have, uh, had declared, the truth about who Jesus is. So, Father, we are grateful for the life we have in your Son, an invitation 
to live deeply in communion with you and with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit. And yes, God, our hearts wander. We are tempted by the things of the world, by progressive culture around us, by whatever else is out there. But we would confess along with your first followers, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And ultimately, we have you. In Jesus' name.